Hello and welcome back to Don't Depend on Daddy, the podcast. My name is Michaela. I am your host and we are back for our second book club recap. The recap for our September book club, which is the Restart Roadmap. So I'm excited for this one. We are not doing any YouTube video today. We only have audio and that is because I am at home on Cape Cod for the remainder of this week and then I return back to LA next Monday, October 3rd. And truthfully, there are a few reasons we're not on video, which I talked about last week. One being that I'm home, so I'm out of my usual setting. I don't have the right setup for video, and honestly, it's just too much work for what it's worth when I'm not in my usual routine. But two, um, my dog died last week, and I'm still devastated over it. I'm still deeply, deeply sad, and I'm not in the mood to be on camera. And so my plan is to return back to video next week for next week's episode, the first episode of October. And I hope that goes to plan. But for now, I'm really enjoying just doing the audio piece because it doesn't require me to like get ready and stuff, which is pretty nice because I can do my podcast and it not be like a whole ordeal. But anyways, that is the story Before we get into the meat of this episode, we'll do our catch-ups, but from a housekeeping perspective, as always, if you like this podcast episode and this podcast in general, if it gives you value, if you're listening to this every single week, please go leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you want to leave me a written review, I really like to read them. I've gotten a few new ones over the last couple of weeks, and I read them all. So if you've written one, I really appreciate it and thank you so much because it makes me feel good. The podcast is so hard because you don't get any feedback on it really. Like it's more of just you're speaking to no one and it feels like nobody's listening, but obviously people are listening and I listen to podcasts of people who say the same things and I always think it's funny. So it's just, it's the strangest form of social media because on Instagram and TikTok and stuff, in YouTube, like people can leave comments, but on here you can't do that. So I do have a feedback form that I've been linking in the show notes. So feel free to go leave me feedback or comments back to this episode if you have any constructive criticism on the podcast. But yeah, that's the housekeeping um, life update wise. So like I said, I am home on Cape Cod this week and I'm going to be here for a couple of more days. I didn't come home just because of the dog situation. I was actually planning to come home this week anyways. And the reason being was because for the next two weekends or for this past weekend and then now this upcoming weekend, I am doing things for my sister's wedding. So last weekend we did her wedding shower It wasn't a bridal shower. It was a Jack and Jill shower with her fiance. And this upcoming weekend, we are going to Newport, Rhode Island for her bachelorette party, which I'm very excited about. So I'm actually going to be doing a whole series on like budgeting for a bachelorette and budgeting to be in a wedding or attend a wedding or attend wedding events because I know it's something that everybody deals with and it can be very, 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 very expensive. I am spending a lot of money this year, probably a a couple of thousand dollars, like $3,000 to $4,000 on just attending weddings, and I'm only going to two. So that's really expensive. I can't even imagine. I'm lucky. 
Because even though I'm 27, there aren't really a lot of my friends who are getting married yet. I only have one friend who is actively engaged. I have a few friends who I anticipate will be getting engaged within the next year. And so I'll be attending their weddings most likely in 2024. So I'm going to continue. Once I drain my wedding sinking fund, I'm going to start refilling it up beginning next year because I want to be able to travel to all of these other weddings. So yeah, I'm going to do a whole series about that. Um, But if you're curious too, I did have my sister on the podcast back in April where we talked about budgeting for a wedding, prioritizing your wedding budget if you are getting engaged or you are married and you're going. And then I also, you know, touch on a couple of the things that I've done to budget for being in a wedding. So yeah, if you want to listen to that, you definitely should. Other updates, I don't think I have too many that I feel are actually I do feel like I have a handful of updates but I don't want to make this episode too long so I'll get through them quick and then next next week we can do a full update so I'm coming back to LA next Monday the following week I'm taking myself on a business retreat and I'm planning to like vlog or do a whole video about how I'm doing that just because I feel like if you own a small business or you have a side hustle and you're having like a creative block or something, it's actually a really great method to tap into your creativity by getting out of your usual routine and taking dedicated time to go brainstorm your business, which is exactly what I'm going to be doing in La Jolla. I booked an Airbnb in La Jolla for a couple of days and I am dedicating that time to go really focus on my business strategy, what I want my business to look like over the next six months, how I want to do things, different content ideas, really just time for me to be creative and think through a lot of stuff that I just haven't had the brain space to think through over the last couple of months. Um, I've shared a handful of times and on my actual upcoming YouTube video on Friday, I'm, I'm bringing out my, or I'm launching my October reset routine is the video that's going live on Friday with a twist. It's less of a reset and more of a looking forward um, sort of video, but I go into it in a little bit more detail. But basically, I've alluded to this a handful of times over the last couple of episodes. I don't know if it's palpable just in my content or my voice or my essence, I guess, on camera lately, but I've just been feeling in a funk. I've been feeling kind of down. I kind of felt down all summer long, you know, In the springtime, once I left my job, I was feeling really, really great and excited about life and the future. And, you know, some things happened in my personal life that I'm not going to get into, but it just sort of sucked the life out of me a little bit. And I had a really sad summer, (laughs) to put it lightly. I was really excited for like a really fun summer and I just feel like I didn't get what I had been hoping for. And so... It just put me in a funk. It put me in a creative funk. It made it hard for me to show up the way I wanted to show up. And I'm trying to be transparent about it because I don't want to glamorize running your own business. I feel like while there are so many benefits to it, there are just as many negatives as there are positives. And I think that there's this whole movement on social media, glamorizing, working for yourself and quitting corporate. And while I've clearly expressed in numerous instances that corporate America wasn't for me, and I'm for sure not complaining about running my own business or anything, but it's not 
what it looks like, I feel like online, it's very hard to stay motivated. It's very hard to hold yourself accountable. It's very hard to push through when things aren't going well. And when you work a corporate job, if you're having a bad day, you can kind of just like coast and shut it off and you're still getting paid. Where when you run a business and you're in a funk or a prolonged funk, which is what I feel like I've been in, you know, you have to power through and it can be draining. And that's just the reality. And so I want to be honest about that just because that's how I've been feeling. And then obviously, you know, I was starting to feel a little bit better. I had set the intention for September to really get back to my roots, get back to the basics with all of my content and stuff and my routines. And, you know, sometimes life happens. And unfortunately, we lost Monty. And, you know, that really threw me off kilter. And it's hard being home. I'm looking for him everywhere Um, it's hard to like be home and have a different routine where he's not there. Um, and yeah, it's just been, it's been emotionally challenging to put it lightly. And so I'm very much so looking forward to a fresh month where, you know, I'm getting out of my usual routine a little bit to go really think about the direction I want to take break your budget in because I have so many ideas and it's just been, hard to put them to paper and I definitely recommend if you are in some sort of creative rut or you're in a rut in your life or your job to really step aside and think about what you want and that is really what we're going to get into today with the recap on the restart roadmap. So similar to last month's book club um, recap, essentially what we're going to do is just go through every chapter, a little bit of a summary, and then, you know, my thoughts and opinions and all the things as we go through it. So with that, let's just get into it. So I think overall, I really enjoyed this book. I do think the first half of the book was significantly better than the second half of the book. I don't know what it was, but once you got past like chapter four and into chapter, eh, chapter five was okay. But like, Once you got to the hiring process chapter and stuff, I just felt like the book went from being helpful to really just talking a lot about Jason's time on The Bachelor and like a lot of his story, which if I'm being completely honest, I don't really care about him as a person and I was more interested in the tips and I feel like the first half of the book was full of tips. And really, really insightful tips and thoughts um, and thought-provoking questions, whereas I felt the back of the book sort of just fell flat and really got into just too much about him. And like, obviously, I was expecting a handful or a good portion of this book to be about him, but it wasn't positioned as a memoir. And I do feel like it was giving memoir and not in a way that I really wanted. So... That's my overall thought on the book, but I do think there are a lot of really good things that he got into and talked about. So it started out with chapter one, which really set the scene for his story and all of the things that prompted him to go through his own career reset. And chapter one was called The Sunday Night Scaries, which I think was a really great title. And essentially, he talks about how 
he was in this banking job and he really like drank the Kool-Aid in terms of corporate culture and like was this big corporate banker guy who wanted to excel. He wanted to be the best on his team. He wanted to be that go-to guy for his manager. He wanted to make the six figures and get the big bonus and move and travel and do all the things. But, you know, eventually he realized like this isn't for me and he wasn't happy and he realized that because he was coping in unhealthy ways. He was turning to alcohol. He was turning to beta blockers and various drugs and he was living for the weekend and it just wasn't working for him. And I don't think that you need to have this sort of, you know, experience where you're turning to substances to have a career reset. Like I think you can identify the things that are not working for you before you reach this point. I do think it's great for the plot. I don't think it's something that is necessary for everyone to go through to realize that hmm, maybe I don't like my job. So I do want to add that in there that like you don't have to be at rock bottom to go through a career reset. Like you can go through a career reset even if you're happy at work and you just want to make sure that you're on the right path. But basically the first chapter ends with him sort of setting the scene around you can write your own script for your career. You can identify what is and isn't working for you. You can define your own version of success and here's how to do it. And that is essentially what he goes into for the rest of the book. So that was chapter one. And I thought that chapter one did a really great job of being relatable to me, at least. Not in the sense of the alcohol and drug situation, because I've never really had an issue with those things. Um, I don't really like to drink. I don't do drugs. I do, you know, take edibles sometimes, but that's not like... A, re- a common thing for me when I'm feeling down about work. Um, I feel like I cope in different ways. So that part wasn't super relatable for me, but I know it's relatable for a lot of people. The part of it that was relatable for me was feeling like I'm just, how did I get here? Like I'm not in the place that I ever thought I was going to be in and I don't know what is right for me but I do know that it's not this because that's how I felt my entire time working in corporate America. And, you know, now since I've been out of it, I've learned why I felt that way. And it's just because not everybody's cut for corporate. Not everybody has the personality to, you know, align with what need, what you need to do to be successful in corporate. And that's okay. And I was one of those people like, I don't do well with authority I can't really be told what to do because I don't like to and I can't I can't conform to that. I don't like playing the game. I'm not good at politics. I'm really bad at like not just saying what I want to say, which maybe you've picked up on in the tone of my content. But like if somebody if I'm supposed to say one thing in order to like keep the peace at work, like I'm physically incapable of doing it. I'm the kind of person who's just like, this is stupid. You're wasting my time and get out of my face. And obviously, that's not what you're supposed to do in a job. And so that is why I don't work corporate anymore and why I've spent so much time building um, up my own business. But I did feel like that whole story he told about just being in a position of like, I don't know why this is my life. That was really relatable to me. Moving into chapter two. We get into break that damn blueprint and embrace change. And I felt like this chapter was really, really well done because this is essentially where he gets into 
why we operate the way we do. And it starts out with, I'm going to read this first paragraph. It says blueprints. We all grew up with one. A blueprint was the unwritten plan for what kind of life we would live later on. It contained all those unspoken expectations and norms and pressures that we accepted without even thinking about them. They were built in part of the structure of our lives and families like Thanksgiving and summer vacations. Nobody preached the blueprint to you. Nobody had to. You just absorbed it. A set of behaviors to follow and actions to take to increase the likelihood of a successful life according to someone or someone else's definition of success. Of success. Put another way, the blueprint instilled in us what we should do to personify the model of professional accomplishment. And I thought that this was so well said just because it's it's so true it's like you know we're all taught basically from early on in our lives to imagine a dream job and you know go to school go to high school take the SATs get into a good college choose a major take the electives join a club get an internship or two, apply to jobs your senior year and get a job and like once you get a job you're launched and you're good, and your parents don't need to worry about you anymore. And I just think that that's bullshit. Like, I don't, I, now that I've been through it, and I've seen how it plays out, and what the future looks like when you follow that to a T, I just don't understand how anybody's happy doing that. And it could just be me. But, you know, reading this book, obviously, brings to light that it's definitely not just me. But I just think that, you know, and it gets into this next couple of points here, and I agree with it, is that the most successful people in life, you know, he talks about Elon Musk and Oprah and Jeff Bezos and whoever. The most successful people in life are people who broke the blueprint. And they're people who, you know, weren't afraid to go against the grain and do something different, even though maybe society judged them. And I don't think he talks about it in this specific chapter, but I do think it would have fit here is at some point in the book, he gets into this quote where he's like, why was I making decisions about my life based off of the opinions of other people when I was the one who had to deal with the outcome of these opinions and these decisions on my own? Why am I making decisions for other people to view me in a certain way if those other people aren't sitting there with me when I'm suffering in silence? And I think that that quote really, you know, put into perspective just how much culturally we follow a certain set of behaviors to be deemed successful. And who are the people who define success? Like our parents or our parents' friends? Like, It doesn't matter what any of those people think because they're not part of your life. I mean, obviously, you know, for some people, your parents are part of your life and you don't want to disappoint them. But at what point do we draw the line of doing things for ourselves versus doing things because our parents want us to or our parents told us to? And that is what the whole point of this second chapter is about. And he really challenges you because... He basically says like we all go through this period after college where we don't where we're either really focused on our career or we don't want to be defined by our career but eventually everybody gets to a point where they don't want to be defined as their career but why do we like define other people by their careers and I'm guilty of this too where somebody much less so now 
that I've sort of broken, I'll say I've broken this blueprint. I'm much less judgmental about people's jobs, but there was a period of time and it, it was purely my ego and my own insecurities talking, but I was judgmental about other people's jobs. And it's because I equated my own success and my own, you know, being with my job title and the industry that I was in, because I thought that that was going to make me happy because that's what I've always been told is the definition of success. And it's just not. And there's this paragraph in here, I'm going to read it. He says, at its core principle, at its core is the principle that a person is defined by their career. Doctor, lawyer, banker, accountant, nurse, teacher, assistant. What what you do for a living is how this damn world stacks your identity. The blueprint tells us that succeeding in that career will bring us fulfillment and happiness. And it therefore stands to reason that the higher we succeed in that career, the more fulfillment and happiness will accrue. And I just think that this statement is so powerful because it's true. Like the first question you ask someone when you meet them or the first within the first three questions you ask someone is, what do you do for work? Where do you work? What's your job? And once somebody answers that question, we then make assumptions or we deduce our opinions based around their answer to that question. Why do we do that? Because literally somebody's job, like, it's just their job. It's just a piece of who they are. It's not who they are. But we equate so much value to that. And it's just, it's it's the societal blueprint that you're not successful in life unless you love your job, you're an executive, or you've climbed the ladder, or you're making six figures, whatever. And he really basically says, you know, this is bullshit. I agree. And then he challenges you by asking if... Nobody was there to decide for you. What is your definition of success on your own terms? Like, is it what you're doing or is what you're doing only successful in the eyes of other people and secretly you're unhappy? So that was the whole premise of chapter two. I really liked it. Again, I think this book started out amazing and then it got, you know, progressively worse as I read through it, but we're still in the amazing part. Chapter three is called The Efficacy of Vulnerability. And this is where he gets into identifying and uncovering what isn't working in your job. And it starts with this exercise where he says to go ask people in your life like what they think you do for your job and like basically what their thoughts on your career. And I think, you know, if you want to do that, that's great. I didn't do that because I don't care what other people think about my job. Um, But, you know, it could be there's value in getting somebody else's perspective. But I think the bulk of this chapter and the main points that he really hits are what he calls career dissatisfaction, a self-examination through five career determinants. And basically, it's a process. I wouldn't necessarily call it a process. It's just five pillars, essentially, of why most people dislike their work. And he boils it down to these five categories. And by going through these five categories, you can determine which one or two is leading you to be unhappy. And then with that information, you can then, you know, make the correct decisions to rectify it. And it's also boils down to this portion, prioritizing these things and going back to his question, what is your definition of success on your own terms? What's important to you in your career right now? And are you getting it out of your job? And these five determinants really like highlight 
what you need to be satisfied and then you determine if you're getting them or not. I think this is really valuable because as you move through your career, there are going to be priority changes and what's important to you between the ages of let's say 22 and 30 could be very, very different than what's important to you and your career between the ages of 45 and 65. Like it's normal for these things to change, but what's most important is that you understand what's important to you now and you're open to those changing and then also that you're open to making changes in order to rectify it. So anyways, the five career determinants, and we'll get into detail what they are, are fear, skill set, compensation, passion, and mobility. And essentially, understanding and defining what your career success looks like is understanding and defining how you rank these five things. And basically, he makes this statement and it says, these are directional signals. It's pointing you to what has to change for you to be happy in your career. Yes. So skill set, the first one is, are the skills that make you align to your job to your company or to something else being used in your job. This is a big one because I think a lot of people feel stupid at work because they are not being or they're not able to use the skills that they actually have. And this is very, very common where you apply for a job, let's say you apply to be a social media manager and you think that being a social media manager, you're going to be the one coordinating with brands are coordinating your social media strategy but what ends up happening is you're the one who's behind the camera you're the one creating the social content but that's not what you were hired to do necessarily like you were hired to do the strategy piece to manage the social media not to create concept everything and be the star of the show and so if that's what ends up being the bulk of your job you know, the skills that you had planned to use and the skills that you want to use and the skills that make you uniquely you aren't being utilized. And maybe you don't, you're not good at being behind the camera. You're not good at creating TikToks or whatever. And you don't want to be doing that. You're going to feel dumb and useless and that you're not getting out of your job what you wanted to get. And so that's what this whole skill set piece is, is like, are you utilizing the skill set, the range of your natural talents and learned abilities in the position that you hold at the company that you work for? Or is the composition of skills needed for your job just like completely misaligned with what you want to do? And I feel like this is very common. This was a big one for me in my first job where I thought that I was going to be doing one thing and then I get into the job, I'm doing something completely different. And I'm like, okay, I feel like an idiot because a lot of, I had to learn a lot of like technical skills in my first job. And I didn't go to school for that. And I didn't go to school for that on purpose because I didn't want to do that. And so I'm like, I'm a smart person, but I'm sitting in this job that makes me feel like an idiot. And because of that, I hate what I'm doing and I hate all of the work that I'm getting and I'm not happy. The next determinant is compensation. And this one's obvious. This is like, are you getting paid what you should be getting paid or what you feel you should be getting paid for the value and skills that you bring to the table? I don't want to go too far into this because I could probably do a whole episode on this and maybe I will. But essentially, this is what he says at the beginning. Well, it feels like compensation ought to be an absolutely straightforward measure of career satisfaction. In fact, it's anything but. Yes, the questions you need to ask are pretty unambiguous. Are you being compensated appropriately for the value you add? Do the bonuses or raises you get correlate to the work you do and the value you bring to it? Are your performance reviews, review rating... are you? 
can I speak? Are your performance reviews rating you fairly appropriately and according to a clear and pertinent set of measurements? This one, he's right. Like, it feels like it should be trained, like, right straightforward, but it's definitely not. And it's because there is so much more to compensation than just your salary. And there's so much more to feeling like you're compensated fairly based on what you're doing. And to be completely blunt, nobody who works in corporate America is compensated fairly for the amount of time and effort that they put into work. Like, You'll never be compensated fairly when you work a corporate job. You'll always be underpaid. And that's just the reality because you can make so much more money doing less work, doing other things, in my opinion. That being said, that isn't always for everyone. And there are so many benefits to corporate. And you know I, how I feel. Um, if this is your first podcast episode that you're listening to, I would recommend listening to some of my other ones too. And maybe... If you guys are interested, send me a DM or fill out the feedback form. I'll do a whole episode on the benefits, drawbacks of corporate America versus owning a business because I think that that would be really eye-opening. I think, and I am going to apologize in advance because I very rarely paint corporate America in a positive light because my personal experience in corporate wasn't positive. Um, It was actually consistently very, very negative and the reason why, which I've talked about, is because I wasn't the right fit for that environment. It wasn't because other people did me wrong. I mean, they sort of did, but like it was more, it was more of it's me, not you kind of thing. But there are so many benefits to corporate. I've done a handful of posts on them too. And I think I am going to do a whole podcast episode about that because I think, you know, we demonize corporate America for like we shouldn't do it as much as we do, myself included. But anyways, compensation. I think when it comes down to figuring out if you're getting paid enough for what you're doing, you really need to uncover like how much work are you doing and how valuable you are you? Like if you were to leave, what would happen? How easy would it be to replace the institutional knowledge you have at your job? And is compensation the key determinant for you to be happy at work? Because Well, getting paid is obviously the reason you're working. You go through different phases in your career where sometimes it's more important to you to get a certain type of experience than it is for you to get a six-figure salary. And from my own experience, there was a time in my second, from my first to my second job, I actually took a pay cut. And I took the pay cut because in that season of my career, The compensation was not the most important thing to me. It was the experience. And I looked at that job switch as a stepping stone. Did it ultimately become a stepping stone? No, but it taught me that job that I took the pay cut for taught me that what I was doing was not what I wanted to do. And that was far more valuable than the extra couple thousands of dollars that, you know, I wasn't getting paid. That couple thousands of dollars didn't make enough of a tangible difference in my life as opposed to like pursuing or really hard pursuing a career path that ultimately I ended up just not liking at all. So remember that compensation is usually the most important thing for many people, but it's not always and you need to look at every job opportunity objectively. The next one here is mobility, the next determinant. And the question he asks is, where will your current career take you? Does your employer have a plan to take you to that place? And is that the place you want your life to be? 
Very, 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 very important question to ask yourself because mobility at work is so important. If you are in a job where you have zero mobility, zero opportunity to progress, whether it be upwards or laterally, you're not going to be happy. You're just going to feel stuck. And part of the compensation at your job, whether it's monetary or not, is opportunity. And are you being given the opportunity to learn new things? Are you being given the opportunity to get trainings or to attend development events or conferences or whatever to actually develop yourself as a whole person in your career on the path that you want to be on? Or are you sort of in like a dead-end job where you don't have any growth and you just are going to continue doing what you're doing forever? If that's the case and mobility is not important to you, then doing what you're doing forever isn't that bad. But if you are somebody who maybe wants to climb the ladder and you're in a job where you're doing a lot of maybe administrative tasks and you're not given opportunity to take things any further than that, it's going to lead to you being unhappy. So that is, I think, for me at the beginning of my career, mobility was probably one of the biggest important things. I think first was mobility. And second was skill set. And third was compensation. Compensation didn't really become super, super important to me until um, a couple of years ago, actually. The next determinant is fear. And he's this is a good one because the quote that he starts with is, In truth, in the corporate world, we are all free agents. In very damn view of us are LeBron James, Tom Brady, or Serena Williams commanding multi-million dollar long-term stratospheric salaries in return for our skills and abilities. Let's face it, organizations thrive on complacency. They count on the assumption that you are content in your pretty good job at a pretty good salary and that clearly the last thing you would ever want to do is risk losing that job. Simply put, people who are afraid do not rock the boat and organizations count on that. Your fear inspires your complacency and is the core of your loyalty to the organization and all its demands. Fear to complacency to loyalty is the fuel that keeps the organization going and you contentedly in your place. To many, it is the determining issue for avoiding a career change. Even the thought of shifting where you are raises the fear level and strengthens the complacency. This, I think, is probably one of the most insightful insightful things he says in the entire book. And it's because it's so true. Like, It's so normal to be afraid of making a career change, making a career pivot, changing your job, going to a new company, getting a raise or a promotion because you feel imposter syndrome or you feel like maybe if I go to a new job, I won't like it as much and then I'll regret it. And that keeps you where you are. It keeps you from trying new things. And, you know, at the exact moment that you're afraid to make a change is the exact moment that you need to do it. Take it from me because I, you know... I made so many changes in the last year and a half of my life, whether it be moving to LA. I knew it was a scary thing to do. I knew that it was a big change, but I also knew that because I was afraid, it was time for me to take the leap. Same with leaving my corporate job. Like I was terrified. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then all of a sudden I'm not going to get any business. And the exact opposite happened. It's a mindset thing. It's you have to let yourself be a little bit uncomfortable because when you're a little bit uncomfortable, you're way more likely to step up and to make sure things go right than if you stay in your comfort zone forever. And I've never once 
heard anybody say that they regret stepping out of their comfort zone. It's always, I wish I had challenged myself more. I wish I had done that sooner. I wish I had made the change two years ago instead of last month. Like you have to push yourself. You can't be afraid to make a change in your career because you will always figure it out. The last determinant is passion. And he he starts this by saying, the only thing left in my career was the paycheck. The very idea of being able to do what I wanted seemed beyond reach. This, I think, is an important point because basically in this part, he says that, you know, it's cliche to say that passion is what makes life worth living, but it's also a little bit true. Like, If you want job satisfaction, you need to be at least somewhat interested in your job. Like in my first job, I worked at a financial services and insurance company. And, you know, I thought because I loved the name of the company, I loved telling people that I worked there. I thought that would make me happy. But in reality, I don't give a fuck about insurance. I don't care about that. Like, It's so boring and dry. And like, if you don't have any passion, you're not going to be happy. And then I saw the complete opposite side of the coin when I worked at a beer company because the people who work at beer companies love beer. I mean, I don't like, I don't like to really drink. So I always felt a little bit out of place, but I thought that like, okay, this is actually a cool company where people like what they do. And, you know, I like the product, whatever. It's exciting. And it was, and it, the, the, Difference in company culture when people are passionate about the business is palpable. So if you are not passionate at all about what you're doing, you're going to be miserable. And there's so many jobs out there where you can work at a company or work somewhere or work in a place where you have a little bit of passion. And so seek that out. It may not be the most important. It may not be top of these five if we're prioritizing them. It may actually be the fifth, but it is something that you do need to consider for overall long-term job satisfaction. So that's the gist really of chapter three, the efficacy of vulnerability. The reason it's called that is because this is where he starts to challenge you to self-reflect and be honest with yourself of like, you know, we feel weird about saying going to work and getting paid is the most important thing to me. Why do we feel weird about that? We shouldn't. Be honest with yourself. If compensation is the most important thing for you at work, that's normal and that's fine and you need to seek out opportunities that are aligned there. For you or for someone else, maybe it could be mobility. You know, maybe they want to climb the ladder and they're ashamed to tell people that because it sounds vain. It's not vain. It's what you want. So go after it. Like don't be afraid to pursue what you want to pursue and get honest with yourself. That was the whole point. The next chapter is your third degree priority probe and in an effort to not make this podcast episode both 10 years long and super repetitive, I'm not even going to get into this because last week's episode is a deep dive on your third degree priority probe. Where should you live? Um, Where you live has the biggest impact on your life and it's very important to choose a place that you want to live. Um, Sorry, I just accidentally hit the mic if you got that weird noise. It's very important to choose where you want to live that aligns with like your your job, your earning potential, and your personal values if you want to be happy. The next chapter, chapter five, is called Your Career Cure. And this is where we get into like what are your options for a restart that will give you the future you seek that fulfills your priorities. So at this point, you know, we've gotten 
through the idea of, I want to restart my career. I figured out what my definition of success is. And now what are my choices? And this is where he starts to rank those five career pillars or determinants that we just talked about. So we just went into what those mean. This is where he gets into the nitty gritty about like, okay, how do I actually figure out what's important to me here? Because maybe I think I know, but I'm not sure fully. So first he talks about compensation and essentially he has, he says, if compensation is the most important thing to you, you have two options, either find ways to make more money within your line of work or find ways to make more money outside of your existing job. Ideally, you could do both. And in order to do this, so to find ways to make money within your line of work, you need to learn how to quantify your work and ask for a raise. And I talk about this often. And if you don't have the own your career template, I definitely recommend that you get it because it helps with this process. But basically, you need to quantify your worth and you need to know how to ask and advocate effectively for what you want, which he gets into in a later chapter. But in order to do that, you need to understand that compensation is more than your salary. It's the total package and that includes things like your benefits from a pension plan, stock purchase plan, equity, signing bonus, base salary, vacation time, health insurance, health savings accounts, disability insurance, life insurance, 401k match, maybe a car allowance, business expense stipend, all of those things are all part of your broader compensation package. And you need to look at your value in relationship to the broader package. So if you go back through like your current benefits package, you can think about and attach a value to each one of those parts. And then what you can do is determine if, is the work that I'm doing aligned with my total compensation package? Do I feel like I'm getting paid a fair salary? Do I feel like if I'm not getting paid a fair salary, the other benefits that I have outweigh that or you know, balance the scale here in terms of pay. Because again, with compensation, like yes, you have a base salary, but maybe your base salary is a little bit lower, but you get four weeks of vacation, four weeks of paid vacation, you get to work from home and your health insurance is paid. So, you know, okay, that trade-off is really great. Or maybe you have a really, really high salary, but you have a high deductible health insurance plan. You don't have a lot of choices and you don't get a ton of vacation time, uh, but you get to work from home. So like you have to think about what layers of your comp package are most important to you. How can you add value to each or like assign a value in your world to each portion of that and then ensure that you're getting what you want out of your job. The next is mobility. Are you confident that your company is looking out for you and the track you want to be on? So we touched on this before, but like, is your company helping you succeed by giving you opportunity and paying attention to you as an employee? Are they enabling you to be autonomous? So you are able to act as you see fit and you're able to grow within the company without being micromanaged or without being told what to do all the time. You're able to share your ideas. You know, you're not being put in situations where your boss is shooting down your ideas or shooting down anything you say or stealing your ideas or your work to benefit themselves? And are you able to move upwards? And if you're not getting that at your job, then you need to find a new one. 
The next is skill set, and it's which of your skills are working hard, being ignored, or not working hard enough. Hard skills are skills that you learn on the job, and then soft skills are ones that come naturally to you. So what you want to do here is look for jobs that allow you to use those skills that are uniquely you. Otherwise, you'll always feel unfit. We talked about this as well, but like this is so, so, so incredibly important because if you are not using the skill set that you have, you will always feel out of place at work. And that's not to say you can't develop new skills. The goal, obviously, the whole point is that you are. But if you're in a job that's completely misaligned with the values and the skills you have and want to use, you're not going to be happy. And so this one is something that, again, I think a lot of people don't truly think about. But when you're ranking your five pillars, feeling you not used but like feeling valuable and essential at work comes down to having a skill set that's necessary for the jobs you have like so if you're not utilizing that skill set you're going to feel unfit the next is fear so are you afraid of what's next and if you are this can lead to you feeling really stuck in your career it's normal to be afraid of the unknown and this obviously leads to complacency and that's it's much easier to be complacent than it is to take a risk. And he basically introduces this idea of what he calls career insurance. And the idea of career insurance is to put you in a place where if you make a risk or you take a risky move in your career, you're okay. And Basically, it includes ensuring that your resume is up to date, you have a list of contacts, licenses, and certifications that you can leverage, your social profiles are updated, you have a recommendation or a reference list, and having these things in order can make it way less scary to make a change in your career. So I think the beauty of that, of career insurance, is just having something to fall back on. And that can just make, it's like an emergency fund, you know, it's like when you have an emergency fund with your finances, you're way less likely to be terrified of the unknown because you know you have a little cushion to fall back on and the same goes for what he calls this career insurance. The next is passion. So we spend most of our lives at work. So to live all of that time with no excitement is just not worth it. You have to have some sort of passion for your job and If you don't, you're going to feel unfulfilled in every aspect of your life, not just work, because you spend so much time working. You spend 40 hours a week working, most of the time more than that. So if you have no passion about anything that you're doing, your life is just going to consistently feel empty and unfulfilled. The next chapter that we get into is hacking the hiring process. And this truthfully is where I feel like the book goes downhill. I do think in this chapter, he does have some good points. Um, First being to reverse engineer the hiring process. So like oftentimes we'll just blindly apply to jobs that sound interesting without looking at the company, without looking really at anything besides the job description. And what he says to do is instead of doing that, what you should do is research companies that you want to apply for and narrow down your target company list to a couple that excite you, that produce products that you're aligned with, that have a mission that makes you feel good with a name you'd be proud to tell people about in an industry that's growing. And while I think this is valuable advice, I don't necessarily think it's super realistic for a recession, which we're in, for a declining job market, which I'm not super sure we're in currently, but like 
people are getting laid off and stuff. So I don't think it's going to be as easy to find a job. I think the job market is going to become very competitive. And so if you're only applying to jobs at certain companies that you love, like you're limiting yourself and it's not super realistic. But Ultimately, you know, I do think that's good advice to make sure you're researching companies and stuff, but you don't need to only be looking for jobs at amazing companies that you're so excited about because what if there aren't any jobs there at the time that you need a job? Like, it's just not realistic. Um, But overall, I thought that this chapter was like sort of overdoing it. And like I said, I feel like this is where the book started to get less valuable to me because it just felt like... It got way too far into details and busy work that weren't important. And that's sort of a theme through these last couple of chapters. But in my opinion, there's way, like, it just really isn't and shouldn't be as hard as he makes it to find a job that you like. And I think if you're looking to completely overhaul your career, which is what this book is for, sure, You'll definitely need to like rebrand yourself. And that was something that he gets into. I'm pretty sure it's in this chapter is like brand defining your brand, like find what differentiates you. He calls them your superpowers, which like, I'm sorry, but that's so stupid. Like, I'm just going to say it. Like, I just don't like your career superpowers. Come on. Um, But basically he said, define your own brand and make everything else correlate with it. Your resume, your cover letter, of course, everything you do on social media. No, I completely disagree with that. Your social media, like sure, maybe Gen Z leverages social media for certain types of jobs and stuff. But like, let's not make your whole social media a brand for you to get a job. That to me is a overkill. Um, And then, you know, I just, he goes into like, you need to have a website and I I think, no, maybe that's in the next chapter, which we'll get to. But basically, I just think this is way too much. And no, he did do the website in this chapter. He did do the website in this chapter. Um, I think he did. Anyways, we'll just talk about that now. There was one point where he said, you need to have a website and everybody should own their own name, like domain. Yeah, he did say that in this chapter. I think he goes, every reader of this book needs to own the URL of his or her own name to have a proprietary website. To me, I'm sorry. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. In my entire life, I've heard a lot of crazy things. You do not need a website to have a job. And like I said, I just feel like this whole thing about like hacking the hiring process All of this is overkill to me. Like really to get a job, you need to have a good resume, maybe a cover letter, but not even because I think cover letters are going to be obsolete. But I think putting in all of this time up front to even decide what jobs to apply to, to me, it feels like busy work and it feels like you're just spinning the wheel in a very unproductive way. Maybe if you're making a complete career 180, like you work in social media and you want to be a lawyer, sure. Okay, like I get that because you'll need to go back to school and stuff. So you want to make sure you're doing your research. But if you're working as a social media manager at an agency and you want to go work in-house somewhere else, like you do not need to do this. 
I just think that if you're going to be putting all this time and effort into finding a new job and getting hired, you're way like it's way more efficient to put the energy into your resume and then put the energy into looking and searching for jobs that excite you as opposed to blindly researching companies that you'd love to work at because you want to work there even if they don't have any jobs available to you like again I just felt like this was total overkill and I would recommend reading this because there are good tidbits in here but in my opinion you don't need a website you don't need a brand you don't need to spend hours and hours and hours I think he alluded to spending like two or three hours researching your dream company reading their 10k and like all like no you don't need to do that um and I don't really think that's a good use of your time but that's just my opinion the next chapter is the art of getting noticed again I I I'm not gonna say it again I am gonna say it again I don't I didn't like this part of the book I thought this chapter was pretty silly and it just felt like a lot Overall, the overarching theme is good and it's positioning yourself to solve company problems, to be the person that HR wants to hire and eventually develop the skill to articulate your skill set clearly and effectively if you want to get hired, which that skill being able to clearly explain what you do and the value you bring to the table is very important and that's the whole benefit of using the Own Your Career template, which is always linked in my show notes. But the reason why, because I get so many comments on that being like, this is overkill. It's not overkill. It's teaching you how to translate what you do into concise sentences and summaries and the value you add. It's a hard exercise to do and it does take time. But when you do it consistently on a weekly basis or a daily basis, you know, you're honing that skill without even thinking about it. And then when you go to find a new job or you go to ask for a raise, you are in a much better position to clearly and concisely articulate the value you bring and, you know, make your pitch and sell yourself, which is the whole point of this. He starts by talking about how like, you know, every second of every day you're selling or being sold to, whether you're aware of it or not. And it's essential for your restart to remember that what you're selling now is your new understanding of who you are and what constitutes success in your eyes. And, you know, you only get one first impression. You can't really make up for it. And so you need to understand what you're selling, who you are, and how to sell in the right way to get what you want. And that's the whole point of task tracking, tracking value add, summarizing your accomplishments, going through a monthly career review, because it forces you to think about like what are the highlights what are the things that I'm doing that are worth talking about and what are the things I'm doing that are mundane that I don't need to put on my resume or talk about in a performance review the rest of this though is fluff and I don't think a lot of it is super valuable like what he does is he spends a lot of time talking about preparation for everything like even going back into chapter six with the branding and the website and this and that. And then in this chapter, he gets into like all body language and all of these things. And I'm not saying they're not important. What I am saying is that he basically goes against the idea of like throwing spaghetti on the wall and hoping it sticks. And I think what needs to happen is there needs to be a balance between all of this preparation and then actually taking action Because you learn by doing, you don't learn by preparing. And if you're going to be sitting around spending hours and hours of your time 
preparing for something, by the time you actually get to doing it, you're going to be all up in your head. So like sometimes you just need to do, like you apply to the job, do the interview. Like you know, he, he talks about like make sure you have the perfect Wi-Fi, the perfect Wi-Fi connection. Come on, like stop spending your time on that and spend time on applying to more jobs. Like if your Wi-Fi goes out, your Wi-Fi goes out. We live in a world now where people understand that that happens sometimes. And I don't think that that, again, is a good use of your time. But to each their own. The next chapter, chapter eight, eliminating the work from networking. Again, I didn't really like this chapter. Um, but basically a couple of the highlights are like everybody loves to talk about themselves. And when it comes to networking, there are two main lessons here. One is that networking needs to be a two-way street and you can't reach out to someone asking for a favor, expecting to get that favor and provide nothing in return. Like if whether you can provide immediate value in return or not is less important of like it being it needs to be an understanding of hey I'm asking you a favor and in return I'm going to give you a favor when you need it an example of this is like when I was looking for jobs you know my uncle was someone who was a mentor to me he was very helpful he made an introduction for me that actually helped me get my first job and that was really beneficial and a couple of years later you know he had a family friend's daughter who like was looking for a job, needed some help, whatever, and asked if I would talk to her on the phone, give her some advice, maybe make an introduction or help her get her resume looked at. And that I returned the favor. And so it's thinking about like, okay, if I'm going to network and I'm going to try to build a network and I'm going to ask someone for something, how can I make sure that I'm available to them in return when they need the favor? So that was the first lesson. The next is that the key to networking is curiosity and you shouldn't be necessarily looking for something out of a conversation. You should be approaching it from the perspective of just being genuinely curious about what the other person has to say, their career path, their story, and be impressed by that because people are impressed by other people who are attentive to them. And I think a really great example of this is like in for example, instances where I've gone to creative networking parties or whatever, the people who are the most captivating are the ones who ask you questions without sharing anything about themselves. Like they're just looking to hear what you have going on instead of being like, oh, you're doing that, so am I. Like it's more, oh, you're doing that, like tell me more about it. You have to be curious about other people's lives. The rest of that, the rest of this chapter you know, he talks about referrals. I think they're great, but like, you know, I, it just, a lot of this was about his time on The Bachelor, which I don't personally care about. And then moving into the last chapter, which was Let's Get You Paid. I do like this because he goes into negotiating, which I think is very valuable and understanding that negotiation is just a conversation which I say all of the time, like you need to know your worth. You need to know how to justify your worth and identify your monetary value, which you can do again. I hate to keep plugging it using the own your career template um, or, you know, use your own task tracker, whatever, but make sure you're keeping track of what you're doing so that you can advocate for yourself. Um, the other piece of this is talking to like other people you work with to understand what they're getting paid so that you can negotiate 
And the key to negotiation is making sure that everybody walks away from the conversation feeling like they're taking something home from it. I think that that's a very valuable lesson of that negotiation for getting paid more or negotiating a job offer or anything like that is a conversation. It's a two-way street and there really is an art to negotiating effectively. He breaks it down into three main pieces. First is planning because this guy seems to be like an extreme planner. Establishing your value, name your price, set a date. Every new job starts with a negotiation and it's essential in that first negotiation that you hold out for as high a starting salary as you can because what you start at sets the premise and the basis of where you're going. And in order to do that, you need to define what's your money goal that you want from, you know, the conversation. Then he gets into how you can help determine and define your value to an organization, which is a question they get all the time. And I think he actually does this very well. So I'm going to read through some of these bullet points. What objective deliverables have you been part of or do you execute regularly? What is the financial value of those deliverables in terms of added revenues or costs saved? What non-financial benefits have those deliverables achieved? What special projects have you managed or executed on within the organization? What has been the revenue or savings impact of those projects? So see how he says like what's the value, what's the monetary value? How can you quantify it? You really want to think about if there is a revenue add or a savings impact related to what you're doing. There won't always be, but if there is one, you want to highlight that. The next is what is the value of your work output divided by the cost to achieve that output? What are the capabilities that you bring to that equation? Among them could be creativity, the speed at which your output is achieved, your education, your connections, your ability to drive the business. You know, what specific advantages to the organization could not have been realized without your particular skill set, connections, or abilities? What would be the opportunity cost of your not being part of the organization? Like, these are all really important questions to ask. And I think something that he asks or adds to this as well is like, your uniqueness. Like, what is it about you that's unique that adds value to the organization? Because everybody sort of brings a different essence or aura to the way that they do their job. And for some, you know, it's really good. For others, it's not. But what what makes yours really good? What makes you unique? And then that's, you know, the first one. He says, make sure you set a formal calendar invitation for a date and time. I think doing that adds a lot of pressure you know I think the best time to ask for a raise or to negotiate your current compensation is at performance reviews when it's naturally something that comes up unless you're feeling really slighted I think putting a calendar a calendar invite off cycle with all of this stuff is very intimidating it makes for an awkward conversation and more often than not They're just going to punt you to the performance review anyways. They're going to say, well, this conversation was great. Like, let's talk about it in three months. So I don't think that you should really even be doing this unless it's something that's naturally coming up anyways, either at a mid-year or end-of-year conversation. That's when you're most likely to be successful. So you might as well put the effort in when it counts. The next is preparing the emotional argument. So he gets into this whole thing about like appealing to someone's emotions when it comes to negotiating I do think this is valuable in a way, but like, again, I just think it's overkill. Like to me, a lot of the stuff that he put in the, in these last few chapters feel like he was just trying to fill the book instead of giving people actual tactical usable tips, 
which I found a little bit frustrating. And then the last phase is the details. So, you know, once you've identified all the moving parts, you're ready to actually get into the negotiating session and he gets like, start with the room that you're in. Like you want to make sure it's the decision maker's office or a conference room so that they're comfortable. If it's virtual, make sure you have good Wi-Fi, have a good background, define what will be most comfortable for you to lean on, whether it's like having notes or whatever, a a pitch deck, like, you know what I'm going to say about all that. It's way too much. It's way too much. It puts so much pressure on the conversation. And if you feel like you're under a lot of pressure, you're not going to accomplish or perform the way you want to. So my advice after reading this is take a lot of what he says with a grain of salt. That's sort of like the summary of every chapter. Take what he says with a grain of salt. I think if you're if you didn't read the book and you want to, read through chapter five. But the rest of the book kind of sucks. And that's just my honest opinion. I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, but a lot of what he says at the end is fluff, like the website thing, the creating your own brand, the like choosing the right room that has good Wi-Fi and researching the company you want to work at for hours and hours before you even apply. Like that's all great. But what if you spend two hours researching your dream company only to find out that there's either no jobs for you to apply for or that you apply to all the jobs and you don't hear back from any of them? Like that then was just a waste of your time. So I don't know. The last portion, take what he says with a grain of salt, like I said, but definitely the first couple of chapters where he goes through self-reflection and really guides you through that process, I thought were super, super valuable. So that is the recap on the Restart Roadmap. Um, Overall, I would give this book maybe like a 6 out of 10. Some people are not meant to be authors, and I don't think that Jason Tartik was meant to be an author. But that's just my opinion. It's way too memory. Maybe my opinion on this would have been a little bit different if it was advertised in a different way. That was less of like, here is the tactical book that you need to rewire and reset your career, which is how it was advertised. Like if it was advertised as, you know, Jason sharing his story and what he's learned along the way, different. But I thought this book was going to be like, I will teach you to be rich, where it was very, very tactical. It lays out what you need to do with lots of information and education. This to me was like way too reflective on his life, which I didn't watch The Bachelor. I don't, I didn't know who he was outside of this book. I don't listen to his podcast. I don't really plan to. Maybe I will. If you guys have thoughts on it, I would listen to it. I'd maybe listen to an episode or two. Um, But like, I didn't know enough about him to care about his story, I guess. And so that was a little disappointing. But that's my thoughts. I'd love to hear yours. Send them to me via DM or on my feedback form. And I will catch you guys in the next episode.